Welcome to the Otson Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prame, Eric Scoble, Jared Mack on the show. Today is Wednesday, which means we can go back to doing our regular scheduled Wednesday mailbag. We've got a bunch of questions. Uh, I believe a lot of them are focused on the football program. Imagine that because we're about almost halfway through fall camp. It feels like the Fresno State game. Week one is right around the corner. Ohio State barreling down the tracks as well. So everyone's got their full attention right now on football. Guys, I think uh, I think we're almost there, and, and the questions show that. All football, all six questions are football. Two of them are recruiting questions. We've tagged those on to the back end here um, because we're going to start with the stuff we've been watching in person at practice, um, which is a lot of team stuff beginning with this question from at pack underscore surf based upon what you've seen thus far in camp from the quarterbacks. Is it more likely that Anthony Brown is our guy the entire year or will Ty Thompson, Jay Butterfield or Robbie Ashford continue their growth growth into an eventual takeover of the spot at some point this season? Hashtag odds and Thank you pack for using the hashtag. I think this is a very timely question, folks, because I would guess prior to Saturday's scrimmage, we might have a little different answers, but the scrimmage was pretty, I think, interesting is a one way of saying it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what Mario Cristobal said on Monday certainly adds to that. So I'll throw it to you, Jared. Um, you've watched the quarterbacks more than I have, probably watched them more than Matt, because Matt is typically shooting photos while you're watching offense, I'm watching defense. Where do you stand right now on the quarterback position? based upon what the question asked? Well, the, the question asked if he if Anthony Brown is the guy for the entire year, which I think is a little bit loaded of a question. Uh, I think he's the game one starter against Fresno State and the game two starter against Ohio State. If he performs well and Oregon, you know, puts up a good fight against Ohio State, yeah, I think he can – be the starter for the rest of the year. But I do think if there is a time to hand the keys over to, to Ty Thompson or Butterfield or Ashford, I think it would be that that week three matchup is still a non-conference slate. Um, it's tough right now. Anthony Brown certainly didn't perform well in the spring game. Uh, in, in our podcast recap afterwards with Eric, I mentioned, like, I just think – I think the potential of Ty Thompson and his overall talent level far exceeds keeping Anthony Brown at at the helm. Um, But I think it's going to have to be a a kind of a game by game decision for coach Cristobal and staff. And I think we can probably find an answer by game three. That sounds good enough. Do you think was Ty Thompson impressed? Like, so we have all kind of said Anthony Brown was not, Super impressive. I think that's true. But do you think Ty Thompson was impressive enough that you could project that, boy, he could do something special this season? Or, or are you still kind of wanting to see a little more from Ty? I'd like to see a little more. I think the scrimmage, though, was a really good indication of where he was. Because we haven't seen any of the quarterbacks really take part in 11 and 11 drills and like just throwing coverage. We can all look at you know, the, pat, the, the route running drills that they run in practice and say, oh, well, he's got a good arm. He can make those throws. That's great. But then when you saw it in game where he would go through all of his progressions and find the yeah. open receiver or use his legs to buy time or, you know, get some yardages, 
you know, that was impressive to watch. And maybe that's just kind of like you kind of have sailor's eyes when you watch him because you haven't seen him do anything like that. But regardless, yeah, he he was the best quarterback on the field on on Saturday's scrimmage. So I think that was probably eye-opening to people who are watching, especially for me and Eric, I'm sure it was for you too. Um, so I think I'd like to see more of that. I don't know when that will happen, maybe next week's scrimmage or this week's scrimmage if we're allowed to go, but it's certainly something to keep an eye on going forward. I don't, I wasn't at practice. So for the scrimmage, so I don't have direct, you know, opinions on this. This is all based off of what you guys have reported, um, what the coaching staff has said on, on the record, but I still, I'm more concerned about Anthony Brown's um, tired arm than I am about a, than I am about a a, a down portion of practice or one practice that we saw that, that to me is more concerning. I think everyone has bad practices that happens. Everyone has um, practices where they maybe have a day where they're far above their mean, you know, their average um, I'm not saying that's the case for either one. It could be, but it, you know, it also couldn't be. You know, it could also be closer to where they're really at. We don't know that yet. But I'm more worried about the fact that Anthony Brown's having to sit a day and a half, two days, and not go through a full practice to rest his arm for throwing than I am of having a poor showing in the first scrimmage of fall camp. I, I still think Anthony Brown's the guy the entire way. Um, but I'm 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 my interest has peaked about that arm thing. Well, can we can we just agree collectively that we'd probably f- feel better if it was just the if, if Mario just said Anthony Brown wasn't performing very well and Ty Thompson was and we just wanted to give Ty more snaps. I think we'd all feel better about the current situation than we would based upon what he did say, which was that Brown, you know, as dealing with what Matt just laid out there, some some arm exhaustion. He was tired and didn't have you know they wanted to kind of rest him. Um, I. I, I I mean, do we agree on that? I mean, wouldn't it feel better if it was just yeah. the cut and dry? Yeah. Like this is this is that one guy looked better. We wanted to give him an opportunity to play more. So and 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 that's why I don't. I mean, I I think we believe Mario at his word that Anthony is dealing with some some arm stuff, and that's really concerning. And honestly, I kind of wish uh, it, it wasn't the case. And if it isn't the case where, where he's actually dealing with anything, which I I'm gonna just say I, I I'm gonna buy what Mario is saying because he said it. Um, and if that's the case, like that's this is not great, and we will certainly report back from Thursday's practice, which I won't be at. I'm going on a short little vacation myself, but um, you, you guys will be there to, to see what's going on. But if, if again, if Brown mm-hmm. is partial or doesn't do a whole lot on Thursday's practice, like that's going to be now the better part of a week where he's not doing very much. And if we're trying to get ready for a season that starts in, gosh, like 15, 20 days, like that's really not ideal. All right. Next one from at John V Adams seems like downfield throwing and our defensive backs have been concerns slash weaknesses. I'm wondering if they focused on that in the scrimmage, thus making it easier for the defense and also limiting AB's touches because they feel good about what he's doing regularly in practice. Tea leaves question mark. Um, so kind of sticking with this point here, but I do want to, before we jump back on the quarterback talk, um, if the concept in practice was to have the defensive backs just kind of face a lot of downfield throwing and stuff like that, the defensive backs I thought stood up very, very well. Um, you know, there were, I think two passes that were completed downfield 
One was against Barkins where he actually recovered and then stripped the ball. And the other was to Brevard for the touchdown. I don't even remember Jared who was on Brevard, but if it's third team defense, that was probably like a walk on, right? Yeah. I mean, so, that was, that was, I think that was like Ashford's lone series and it was just the third team offense versus the third team defense. So whoever he's facing there is Brevard is probably not a scholarship player or not. I shouldn't say probably, it just is not a scholarship player. Yeah. So I, I think overall, I think they performed really well. Um, I thought Bridges and, and Manning were both great. And I know Mikhail Wright, I think, was like one of the scrimmage MVPs from, from the program. So that speaks to how well they, they, they charted it, having now watched it a second time, um, which is something we didn't get. We kind of had to just, you know, we're after watching and we're probably focusing on some of the guys we haven't seen as much as opposed to someone like Wright, who obviously had a strong day. I made the point of like how many times has he even been thrown at because it just seemed like he was so money. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I, I think that part stands out and needs to be said too. Like if, we're, if there's concerns about being thrown downfield, sure, I want to see a lot more of it in game. I want to see it against Ohio State before I'm like, this group's awesome. But I was really encouraged by what we saw. And again, the receivers Oregon does have that were available are good receivers. So for Oregon secondary to hold up pretty well, I think that was certainly um, encouraging. Uh, I'm, I'm other- not, I wasn't at practice so I, for that scrimmage. So I couldn't talk to the the – what was going on from a play calling perspective, but I do think like, I I do think that the fact that Anthony Brown, like this notion that Anthony Brown can't throw downfield is a little overblown. Like has he missed some throws? Sure. Yes. Are there concerns? Yes. But it's not, I don't think it's also one of these deals where it's like Oregon's just not going to call any downfield throws. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, no question. Um, They'll call it. Yeah. I mean, they, they they did on Saturday, right? You know, let me talk about limiting that, but they did. Um, and then the other part here of of wondering uh, if they felt so good about Anthony, so they limited his his touches. Well, we just kind of outlined a second ago why they limited his touches, and it wasn't. I mean, I'm not saying they felt bad about him, and that that was the reason, but it sounds like it's because of something physical with him, and not necessarily because of how good he looked in practice. I mean, Cristobal had said. You know, right as he as he did kind of announce that they were that's why they they pulled him out. Um, he did say that he ha- that Anthony had a great fall camp, and I believe him. I mean, I think when we watch again, when we watch the the passing stuff, or when when Jared does, a lot of it's just like on air with receivers. Most of it is, so it's really hard to like unless somebody's just completely off every throw. It's kind of hard to draw too big of conclusions. Um, but the staff has seen a lot, so obviously he's been getting first team reps for a reason. But the reason he didn't get first team reps at the end of the scrimmage was not because of that it sounds like it was because of something else yeah and, and mario broke down how they you know, wanted to go through progressions with quarterbacks he i think i think he wanted 20 th- 25 throws per quarterback that was uh, ashford the, was was less was because he was a little banged up um but yeah it was this goes back to to matt's point about being a little concerned about this overuse for a quarterback's arm which i think is Again, it's interesting to note because, you know, quarterbacks aren't throwing that often, and he certainly didn't throw that often during the scrimmage. He didn't throw at all on Monday's practice. Well, he warmed up, uh, but he didn't take part in any of the route drills, anything like that. And I think that's just something to note, that he's experiencing arm fatigue week two of fall camp. Next one from at Matt Euler. Any concern with Mario Cristobal's ability to pick starters? He seemed to take a long time last year before he got the right kicker. Um, 
I, I just, I mean, the first thing we have to say is we Mario, Mario is dealing with a lot more data in terms of determining who should start football games than anyone else. And his staff has a lot more information. They watch practices. They break it down. Frankly, they know more about football than we do. Um, so if it's a tough decision and it takes him a long time, I'm going to trust that that takes him a long time for good reason. Um, I do think you have to at least acknowledge the kicking thing is kind of strange. And the fact that on Friday, Bobby Williams was asked about the kicker competition and kind of where things stood and said, it's open. Um, I'm sure Oregon fans don't like hearing that, but that's what was said. And it sounds like Henry Cattleman and Camden Lewis are still in an ongoing kicking competition to be the place kicker. And that's now a year after we saw, I thought some really impressive stuff from Cattleman as opposed to what we've seen from Lewis. I just wrote it in the story. Lewis is 10 for 18 in his career as a place kicker on field goals. And Cattleman is four for four. And two of Cattleman's longest kicks are longer than any kick Lewis has made. So um, that sort of outlines just the in-game comparison. Like There must be something crazy going on in practice. I, I think I noted it on a previous practice that I'd heard last year that some of the in-practice competition was a lot more competitive than what we saw in the field. Um, but sure, I think it's, it's understandable that people are kind of con confused a little bit about why Cattleman has to prove himself after it looked like he did that pretty well a year ago. All right. Yeah, I, oh. I mean, sorry. No, no. I think to answer the question of, of if there's any concern with Cristobal's ability to pick starters, no. I think last year with the kicking thing, that was strange. Don't get me wrong. It was, it was pretty evident that Cattleman was, was the better kicker. And we saw that towards the end of the year. Uh, and I think this question kind of is in reference to letting Shuck go too long and uh, not putting in Anthony Brown sooner in the season. Mm -hmm. um, I just don't, I just don't think Mario had a lot to play with last year. I think he has a lot more talent at his disposal this year. I do think, well, I, I would, I would assume or hope that he had learned from last year of maybe, you know, keeping Shuck in too long that he will have a quicker hook when it comes to people who can't perform. And so, no, I, I agree with you, Eric, where Mario has all these things at his disposal. And I don't think that he's going to, you know, make the wrong decision necessarily when it comes to picking a starter. We also don't know that like last year with a kicker deal with Camden Lewis, it could have been a case where Camden Lewis in practice is above and beyond better than Henry Cattleman. And just for whatever reason, Camden Lewis couldn't perform when it mattered the absolute most and miss some kicks during games. And so when it's that, when it's that type of, of situation, it, it's kind of hard to throw, you know, to, to make a when, when one guy stands out better than the other one in practice and then doesn't perform in games you want to give the benefit of the doubt because ultimately it's a consistency thing, you know, and, and I'm not saying this is what happened with Lewis and Cattleman, but it probably played a factor in that, you know, we know that Cattleman wasn't this just lights out kicker in practice every single day. And we also know that Lewis was better in practice than he was um, in games. And that, that factors into it. So, when you look at maybe Cristobal picking a starter for, say, quarterback for, for this year, I do think you have to go with, with what you have right now everywhere else, going into the year with a completely 
perfect resume, zero and zero, and you control complete, you have complete control of your destiny, you got to go with the guy that's the most consistent. Now, the one caveat to that is, is there a guy that maybe might make a couple mistakes early on in the first couple games of the year, but they shouldn't cost us a game you know, it might, it might prevent us from scoring 50 when, and when we should. Instead, we're scoring high 30s or low 40s, but it doesn't cost us the game. And, and the return on those guys, and that guy playing through those mistakes and learning, learning from them could accelerate his growth and we become even better down the road in, in week 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and beyond. Then that's where it gets real difficult. I don't know if we're there yet at quarterback. Like, I don't feel very confident that Oregon will beat Ohio state this year, no matter who starts at quarterback, but I feel a lot more confident that Oregon beats Ohio state with Anthony Brown week two, than Ty Thompson making his, you know, first or second start um, against the Buckeyes. Like, and maybe it's a case where Ty Thompson is ready and we just don't know it. And, you know, we'll, we'll see week one, if he wins the job, but Right now, from an outsider's perspective, I'm much more comfortable going into that game relying on Anthony Brown than a true freshman who's never played college football before. I, I will say, if the caliber, and I apologize, I think there's some sounds behind me again. Um, uh, I, I will say, if the quarterback we see play against Ohio State in Columbus is the Anthony Brown we saw on Saturday's scrimmage, and Ty Thompson is capable of being the player we saw him be, it's a pretty easy choice for me. I take Thompson's arm and his ability to read defenses and all that pretty clearly above Anthony Brown. But I also think what we saw on Saturday was likely the very, very best case scenario from Ty Thompson and probably pretty close to the worst case scenario for Anthony Brown. So that's where it gets hard to measure this and trying to, to pick through it. Um, because again, we're basing a lot of this off of and fans right now who are suggesting it should be Thompson over Brown or whatnot are basing it over one practice compared to what you have with eight other practices that no one else is able to watch in entirety and then to review and look over. So um, there's a lot of data here that I think you have to consider, but I do think like the upside of what we saw from Thompson was a lot more attractive than the, just basically what we saw from Anthony Brown. Like if that's what Anthony Brown is going to provide, like I, I, I'd honestly just say go with the younger guy, but I also think that that's probably not, the Anthony Brown we should expect to see from Oregon this season. Um, and then one last thought I just had, because it, it, is anyone else surprised Camden Lewis hasn't transferred yet? Like, yeah. Doesn't that, yeah. Doesn't that feel like that should have happened? Which, if, which like, means he thinks he's got a true, a true chance at winning the job back. Exactly. It, it is, and I brought that up a little bit because it kind of reminds me of, of Anthony Brown sticking out, you know, through last season and then after the season and then Ty, Tyler Shuck transfers and, I, not, I'm not saying that's what's going to happen where Camden Lewis is going to end up winning the job and Catalan's going to leave, but it does, it does seem to indicate that Lewis has real confidence that he's got a shot at winning this job because it would be very easy. He's from North Carolina. Um, he was a highly, highly sought after prep kicking recruit. And I'm guessing there would be another power five or at least a, a level below that a division one school that would take him. So I think that sort of indicates why, you know, this, this is actually a real competition because he hasn't taken off yet. He very easily could have after the 2019 or certainly after last season. Um, all right. From at Nash underscore Duckaneer. Since Justin Flo has seemed to form a reputation of being a hard hitter, are you guys worried at all? He may get penalized slash ejected 
in any games this season. Hashtag at Sonatables. I wouldn't say he's he's seemed to form. I think he has formed a <laughs> reputation as a hard hitter. And anybody who watched his high school film knew exactly what Oregon was getting. And it's just been something we've now been able to watch on, in practice and in the spring game recently. The dude's an animal. <laughs> yes. Jared, Jared, like, but I mean, I, but I will say I actually kind of a reasonable point, like with how hard this dude hits people. And we think about that seven McGee hit. I don't think that would have been flagged, <laughs> but there were probably some time I could see him getting hit you know, flag a little bit just because he is rocking guys so well. Um, and it could be one of those things where you watch the replay and it doesn't look like there's any ill intent, but the initial com- contact is just so immense that you're kind of like that, that couldn't be legal, right? He couldn't hit a guy that hard. Oh yeah. hundred percent. I think there's absolutely a chance he gets penalized or ejected this season. Like it's, and it's not going to be with, with like malice intent or anything like that, but yeah, you watch his high school tapes where the rules are a little more laid back and he's suplexing people on the field. And I don't think he'll be doing that in college, but I hope yeah, that. no, he has yeah, then that would be an automatic ejection. Um but I think yeah, it's really important that he's he plays like with that physicality and that tenacious, you know, mindset. But there's gonna be a moment, I'm sure, where he gets a hit on a quarterback. And because some of the targeting rules are pretty finicky that he might get hit with the targeting call at one point, Uh, it's just going to be how it is. But I think Oregon and the staff are well aware of, well, well aware of that. And they're not going to tell him to change a thing. I, I 100% expect Anthony, you know, uh, Anthony Brown, Justin Flo to (laughs) be, you know, in a position where he might get ejected, but I don't think it's going to be any more different than any other player. I I think some of these targeting calls, quite frankly, are BS um, in terms of the injection standpoint. Um, And it's just the rules have, have made it significantly harder for defensive players to hit offensive players. Um, That's just the fact of the matter. And you know, one slight little dip by an offensive player to, to better protect himself from the oncoming hit. And that could lower the player's helmet, which then could get struck by a shoulder on top of the crown of the helmet. And therefore he's ejected. And Justin Flo literally did nothing wrong. You know, it was not targeting at all, but because of the positioning the, the ball carrier took, that's how the tackle finished and he gets penalized for it. That being said, Flo and Sewell and Adrian Jackson and Mace Funa and KT, and you could go down the list a little bit more too, are all guys. I mean, Verone McKinley are all guys that have reputations of being dudes that can lay the lumber and can straight up hit real hard. And it's not just a Justin Flow thing. It's it's a it's a case where, you know, like it or not, Oregon's just going to have to. And this is every school. This isn't just Oregon. They're going to have to tackle with proper mechanics because if you don't, you open up the door for you know a weird positioning with how a tackle finishes and you're getting penalized for it. Let me make a weird kind of prediction. I'm going to predict the player on Oregon's team who's flagged the most for these kind of penalties is not Justin Flow, but it's Bennett Williams. Um, if I was thinking you were going to go with Verone. Yeah. 
No, Bennett. I think Bennett Williams is going to kill some dudes out there, um, based upon what we've from what we've watched and what I've heard and, and the conversations I've had with people. So, like, I, not, I'm not. I think Flo's a harder hitter. Um, but if Williams is starting at nickel all season or the star position, however you want to refer to it, right? Um, and Jamal Hill's not available. And again, if Hill's available, it probably changes things. But if if Williams is playing that many snaps and he's coming from that position, and you go watch what he did at Illinois and kind of his reputation, um, he certainly has the. <laughs> And we're talking about like this is a good thing. He certainly has the possibility of getting some targeting calls. Look at that. Um, but he certainly has the possibility of, of really hitting some guys, and, and that might lead to some penalties. So um, another. I, I would agree with that. Like who? Who? Let's let's run real quick. Let's run through the list here. Um, the five hardest hitters on the football team. Hmm. I think I think Bennett has to be on there. Verone has to be on there. Um, Justin I think Flo, Justin Flo, Noah Sewell have to be on there. Yep. Let's put KT on there and call it a day. Or is it is it Adrian Jackson? I don't have a lot of mm-hmm. I don't have a lot of Adrian. I mean, I know I know Jared has a real soft spot for Ajax. Um, so I'll let, I mean, do you think this Adrian Jackson hits harder than the other five guys you've mentioned? Not the other four, but not I, the other four. But we think more than KT. He gets harder. There. He hits harder than KT. See, the I don't issue know if is, K- I feel like for defensive linemen, is they're not going to have like the running start a safety or a linebacker. Right. Does. But KT, so they playing. can hit hard, but it won't look like they're hitting hard. They're just throwing somebody down to the ground. But like, KT's, I do KT's fear. KT's playing standing, though. KT's playing more standing, though. True. Hmm. Maybe. I do fear for the man who goes across the middle and has to <laughs> meet either Sewell or Flo. Good Lord. Yeah, yeah getting through one routes. of them is going to be difficult. Getting through both of them. <laughs> Will be almost impossible. It's gonna happen. I just hope it doesn't happen against Fresno State or Stony Brook. How many helicopters do we see? <laughs> three. Actually, let's set the over under on three and a half. And what what you mean by helicopter is a guy goes out for a pass and gets hit underneath, and his body just goes parallel and turns in a rotation like a helicopter. I, I'm with Jared. I think we probably see three this year. Or it's a quarterback like Sage Rosenfels who gets hit. And oh. does anybody remember that? That's one of my all-time favorite NFL plays. I watched that in college with all my college friends. And he, Sage on that day, Sage became a fan favorite in in our in our, in our plays because he he rolled out with the game on the line for no reason and got helicopter hit and the ball was fumbled into losing. It was one of the all-time funniest plays. Anyway, um, random. That's probably the only time he'll ever be mentioned on this podcast. <laughs> Pretty strong bet. All right. A uh, couple recruiting questions to wrap this up from at one. And here's a bunch of numbers. Six, five, five, nine, zero, one, five, nine. What do we think those numbers stand for? I was for? just going to say, is that a phone number? Is that a social security number? <laughs> what are those numbers? Um, one, if it's something that's not, uh, <laughs> I hope it's neither of those things, but if you want to tell us, uh, Juan, on the, uh, after listening to this, what those numbers stand for, I'd be, I'd be curious. Uh, Juan asks, any elite 2023 football recruits you believe the Ducks are in good standing for? Um, we've gotten to the point here where 2022 is going so well. I think people are starting to turn their attention a little bit to 23. Um, Oregon, I don't want to say they're like behind where you'd expect them to be in 23 because – Typically, they do like to get everything done in, in 22, or, or I should say just the class before they move on to the juniors and sophomores and stuff like that. No current commitments in 23. but That is kind of strange in itself that they don't have a, at least one. Like It's not yeah. like a concern, but it is it is surprising. Yeah, I was looking through it, and Marianne Winston and Andre Dollar were both committed a year ago um, by now. So typically, they do have some 
some guys that are lined up. It, it, some names to know, Matt, in 23 that you think are, are top guys that Oregon fans following this podcast might want to be kind of aware of as, as we start kind of – because, again, we are transitioning from 2022 being the focal point to 23 here. Anybody they should know. Right. Well, I think there's a couple tight ends that um, they are in a really good position for. One is Walker Lyons, a four-star, six-foot-five, top 70 player in the country, regardless of position. And then an in-state kid, Riley Williams, who's six-foot-five, a hundred top 150 guy. I think Oregon's in a really, really good spot for both of them. It wouldn't surprise me if they take both of them. Um, offensive lineman Francis Maui Goa. Um, he is originally from Samoa. He plays his football though in Florida, five-star, the seventh best player in the country, the second best offensive tackle in the country. Oregon's in a good spot there. Uh, probably the most likely candidate to be an early commitment um, right now, at least is Spencer Fano, another offensive tackle from Timpview uh, high school in Provo, Utah. He is the eighth best offensive tackle in the country, a four-star prospect, a top 120 player. Um, Oregon's in a really, really good spot with Spencer there. Um, I also look at Jerion Dickey, a four-star. He's an athlete, but Oregon's recruiting him as a receiver, six foot two, 210-pound guy, just blew up at Saturday Night Live um, and, and is someone that I think Oregon's doing a really good job at the receiver position lately. In, 20, in 2020, in 2021, now in 2022. And they're setting themselves up in 2023 where they're going to, you know, they're going to be players again for some of the best players uh, at, at that position nationally. And so I, I think Dickey is one of them that you have to keep your tabs on and, and see what happens there. Um, there's, a, there's a long list and one in which we probably should dive into a little bit more in depth um on on duckterritory.com because the names are are just doesn't feel like they stop i mean like they even mentioned five-star tackle um jaden wayne from tacoma you know he's the 29th best player in the country and you know that's probably another one of those guys that you look at that that you say that's probably an early candidate for oregon to land the five-star like i'm not saying he's going to commit early but like that's one of the the guys that you feel early on right now, Oregon's got a good shot at getting. Oregon was actually the first school to offer Wayne at the yep. 2019 SNL camp. So that they go way back there and certainly a relationship mm -hmm. there. And, and just quickly on Jurian Dickey, um, he was, I think we agreed probably the alpha of the entire camp, regardless of position. Is that fair, Jared? Oh yeah. 100%. Yeah. I would agree with that. He was by he was far the best wide receiver. And, and, I think I'd, what I like most about him was that from a body type perspective, he's just different than the guys Oregon has been landing. I mean, you see a lot of tall, lanky guys. Dickey is similar to actually a 2020 uh, one. Yeah, 2021 was 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 Chiron Ware Hudson, um, who was very similar build of like really six one, six two, very stocky, sturdy build, strong kind of. I think compared to like the Anquan Bolden or maybe even like a from Oregon fans a Josh Huff body type. Um, Dickie has got that kind of strength and physicality, I think, to be someone that's just really difficult to contend with for a smaller corner. So I, I love that kid. And if he ends up at Oregon, that's going to be someone again, it's just like every year they're going to be landing guys that are, are awesome at that position. So I uh, hope that's somebody, I mean, if you're an Oregon fan, you hope that's somebody that they, 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 that they are able to get. Final one on the show from Alex PDX 88. 
Very simple, short, and to the point from Alex. Where are the running back recruits? Hashtag got some audibles. Um, Alex, we actually got some clarity on the 2022 class and why there are no running back recruits. I don't think we've talked about this on a podcast, so I will run through a little of the information Jim Mastro shared on Friday, so about a week, a little less than a week or uh, ago. Um, Mastro was asked about you know difficulties of recruiting running backs when you have so many talented ones on your roster because Oregon is currently carrying six running backs. Um, and he said that's why they only take one per year. And they look at it like a quarterback position where they want to f- basically identify the top running back either on the West Coast or nationally, wh- whoever they think they can get, and then put all their eggs basically – I don't want to say all their eggs in that basket, but they're only going to take one. Um, and so in 2022, why are they not taking one is because they actually kind of – Jim kind of bent the rules in 21 because he was such a big fan of Byron Cardwell. Um, and he said that – the you know here's, a, here's the quote that, uh, that Jim gave last week. He said, we're, only, we're not taking a running back in this class – that was my selling point to coach. I wanted Byron so bad that I said, give me him last year and we won't take one next year. So um, there's the context for that. So, you know, in terms of running back recruiting, it's going to be a one per year thing. And if they really, really like a couple of guys, they think they can get like they did in 21 or sorry. Yeah. In 21, then they're not going to, they'll take two. And, and that'll mean that the next class, they only, they don't take one unless someone's really special. So um, there's kind of the strategy behind it. Um, and then I did notice that Alex later in the comment, someone, someone actually posted the uh, uh, story that I'm referencing here, which is on duckterritory.com. The headline is Mastro explains Oregon's approach to recruiting running backs. If you want more of the information, uh, go find that on duckterritory.com. But someone posted a link to that and, and Alex responded with, well, why not? We haven't had any good, Oregon hasn't landed any good running back recruits since Royce Freeman. Um, which is kind of probably true in terms of he's the highest, like they haven't landed anyone more highly regarded, but I think that's kind of sort of disrespectful to the guys currently on the team. I don't know. Like I, I guess we still have to wait and see with four of the guys, the two guys that are currently playing. I'm guessing fans like Alex are probably kind of bored of watching because they've seen CJ Verdell and Travis die for like half a decade now. But like, look at the recruiting rankings of the other four guys. They're all basically four-star recruits. And the one that's not is Trey Benson. And he's the one that's getting the most buzz out of camp. So, um, I know we all get obsessed with recruiting rankings. I, I think you're kind of misinformed if you think that the talent at Oregon at running back stinks right now, though. I do though think the production at the running back. I think I think that's where the biggest I don't know misconnect you know misconception or st- you know breakage of 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 a thought process happens is. I think the production at running back is not what it should be based on the ta- the perceived talent at running back. If that makes any kind of sense. I, I think the position has underperformed last couple of seasons, or, and I should say last three or four seasons. And partially is that's due because TJ Verdell can't stay healthy for an entire season. Yeah. And, and the stats, mm-hmm. the stats would back that up, Matt. If you look at the year by year rushing averages, since let's say 2015, I think Oregon was leading the Pac-12 or first or second in the Pac-12 from 2008 through 2015 every year. Um, and then since 2016 through 2020, they're, I think they're between like three and third and seventh in the Pac-12. So there has been a drop off for sure. Um, I think the injuries to Verdell have been a, played a part in that. I also yeah. think some of it might be schematic in terms of you can't, it's hard to compare 
the running offense that Chip Kelly was employing where no one was really running a spread offense like it. And teams were just out there kind of on the fly trying to figure out how to stop it for two or three seasons. Um, and Michael James, I don't, Michael James is an awesome running back. The best running back I think Oregon's ever had. Um, Kenyon Barner is on near the top of that list too. Those are the guys that were running the ball, but I think a little easier for those two guys to run it in that offense than it is to run it in the current offense. And that's not, I'm not saying Oregon is really like a bad offensive school right now, but I'm saying what Chip Kelly was doing was so innovative at the time that no one else was doing it. And if you were to try and again, now you see Chip Kelly trying to run a lot of the same stuff he ran before. It's not working. It's not working. So I think there's scheme parts to play as, as, as well as like, it's never as simple as the running stats aren't good. It's just the running backs fault. There's a lot of people that need to be kind of pointed out there as well. And who knows, we'll see what happens this year. I like, I'm, I'm open to really changing my stance on this. If, if CJ Verdell and Travis Dye stink this year and the running game is awful and, and Oregon can't run the football, like, okay, that would be a trend now that that would be disconcerting, but I, I kind of don't expect that's what we see. I don't expect that's what we see either. I will, you know, plant my offensive line flag again. Let's say that like the, the need or the necessity to recruit elite running backs isn't as vital, I think, to running back success as elite offensive linemen. But uh, I mean, I would have loved to have seen a fully healthy Sean dollars get reps this year and uh, like right behind CJ Verdell. Cause I think, while Travis Dye is a running back, I do think that his skill set is best used in that short passing game that we saw last year where he averaged like 17 yards a catch. And I think a tandem of a healthy C.J. Verdell and a healthy Sean Dollars would put Oregon's you know, run game at a different level. And maybe one of the freshmen, maybe Byron Cardwell or Trey Benson or Seven McGee get their hands in there. But I do think Sean Dollars could – might be the most purely talented back on the roster. Uh, I think CJ's better, but I think just the natural skills that, that Sean Dollars have has would be hugely beneficial to this offense. Yeah, I before Sean Dollars got hurt, I, I was looking at him as a guy that's probably someone that would see the football field, even, you know, a, a good a good chunk in 2021 even though Verdell and Die were back, um, I, I think he had shown some, some progress. Things were trending in the right direction um, for him, but now he's hurt and we'll see what happens if he can get back in time to make you know a big impact. But I'm with Jared too, that I don't think you don't need a five-star running back to – put up a 1200 1300 yard rushing season in college football anymore now having a five-star running back makes life a lot easier if that guy plays up to his talent but you can you can get more out of that position than you can at other spots along the offensive line I mean, along the offensive group and then his 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 point of the offensive line is perfect like you can only develop, and it's just any position, really. Like you can only develop a three-star or a four-star guy so much, a two-star guy so much. Eventually, you run into a situation where, if you're a team that's primarily made up of three-star players and four-star players, and you're a really good developer, yeah, you're you're probably going to win some games that on paper you probably shouldn't because of your skill development, your player development, but. 
eventually you're going to run into a team that's made up of five and four star players. And those guys are going to be developed just like your team is. And they're just simply going to be bigger, faster, stronger. And like Joe Salavea said last year or two years ago, I think it was football still comes down to a game of, you know, big people beating up on little people. And if, if you're the bigger, faster, stronger team, more often than not, you're going to win. A lot, I think a lot to unpack in terms of the run game, actually. And maybe we haven't talked about it enough. Just of that's a group, that's an area where Oregon really needs to improve. And I think a lot of factors play into it. And I hope, I think we've kind of outlined most of the ones that are most important, right? In terms of running back talent, offensive line development, um, scheme. Um, there's a lot at play in terms of being a better running team. And I know based upon what coaching coaches and players have said, that's a goal for Oregon this year is just to be better in that area. Cause they've recruited offensive line talent at a really high level. And Mario Cristobal clearly wants to have a team that can win in the trenches. Um, now it's time to start seeing those results. I think a little bit better. I just am still in the stance of I'm not, I don't think we should blame the running backs entirely for sure for all the results. That's what mm-hmm. I'll say. Sure. I, I, I would agree with that. I mean, I, I, Football is a team sport and, you know, you can have the best running back in the world. And if he doesn't have proper blocking, he's not going to be able to, you know, have a big game and you can have the, the, the most talented offensive line in the world. And if you don't have a competent running back that can see the hole, you know, he's not going to run for a, a, a big number every week. It's going to do it for us here on the Austin audibles podcast. Thank you for listening to the show. Thank you for submitting your questions. And until later this week, you've been listening to the Odds and Audible's podcast. Talk to you later, folks. Peace.